Welcome to Apparently, the podcast for absolutely average parents. I'm Ann Johnsos. And I'm Tracy Weiner. Parenting is hard. There's no manual that goes along with that new baby. And it doesn't get any easier when they get older. Yeah. Most days, I feel like I'm flying blind. (laughs) Most days, I feel like I'm building the plane while I fly it. (laughs) So that's where this podcast comes in. Think of us as your coffee clutch, your wine buddies, your trust tree. We talk about kids, families, our significant others. Remember when you were my significant other, Anne? Wait, I'm not anymore? And remember, we're just average, not experts. We find the experts to help us through the real head scratchers. Well, we did do that episode on lice, remember, Ann? Ugh, now I need to take a shower. So circle up and welcome to Apparently. Apparently, our days of being blissfully ignorant parents of tweens and teens are numbered, Ann. And the cold hard facts are staring us in the face. That sounds pretty ominous, Tracy. Our kids are growing up, and soon we're going to watch them fly the coop, you know, leave the house, and hopefully head off to college. Fingers crossed. And arguably, this will be the biggest financial decision or decisions uh, with multiple kids um, we'll ever have to make as a family about where our kids are going to go to college. I learned, um, I recently learned that the college board keeps track of data that families pay for tuition and room and board for in-state students, both at public four-year universities and at private colleges. And in the last 20 years, get ready for this, the price has risen 70% at public universities and only 21% at private colleges. Wait, wait, wait. That's crazy. But why, why such a big difference? Is that because, and I speak from experience, is that because private colleges cost way too much to begin with? Miss Miss Yelly, um, I, I don't know, but I I do call into question. Given the last year with coronavirus, I feel like it's even more complicated because that's just an obscene amount of money and and a big uh, expense uh, for all of the families. Yeah, and so our oldest kids are freshmen, or I, as they like to be called now, first years. Um, <laughs> that's a new one. I haven't heard that in one. high school. Okay. Um, and so it seems like okay, we've got time, but we all know. Recently, we've learned how a year can fly by while also feeling like a lifetime, right? So college is closer than we think. I know, right? But um, what college looks like in a few years, we don't even know. I mean, it could change in a couple of years. I know that since the pandemic, the coronavirus and COVID-19 started last year in 2020, I have friends um, with kids that are heading off to school that are considering gap years or a semester off or experiencing virtual classes at home. I have a friend whose daughter stayed home for the first semester and just did it from home. And many of these, my friends are like scratching their heads like, holy smoke, are we really paying an obscene amount of money for something that doesn't even look like what we remember college to be? So to talk about the topic of college and what we pay for college, we're bringing back someone we'd selfishly or I'd selfishly like to call an FOP, a friend of podcast, Ron Lieber. He's the personal finance columnist from the New York Times. Ron Lieber, you say. The name might sound familiar to our listeners (laughs) uh, because he was on with us during our first season to talk about allowance, which was mind-blowing to me because I I learned so much. Um, That podcast was one of the most popular we recorded, not surprising because money is one of the biggest stressors in any household. And um, Ron has quoted one money guru saying that personal finance The word personal is just as important as finance. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Ron's new book, The Price You Pay for College, is hot off the press. And frankly, I don't think this could be timed any better than it is. Because like I said earlier, in the year of corona, lots of parents are scratching their head in disbelief at 
uh, what they're paying for and, and what they're not getting with the college experience anymore. Hey, Ron, thanks for joining us. Hello. Thank you for having me back. So, Ron, you took time away from the New York Times to research and write this book. And I imagine as a finance columnist, you field questions from families all over the place. In your book, you talk about sort of what inspired you to do this deep dive. What were you hearing from people? What were the questions that were coming up that you think, um, yeah, just give us a couple. Sure. So I'm glad you framed it exactly that way because I work for readers, right? I work for subscribers. They're the people who keep the lights on at the New York Times and purchase books. And so I'm always looking for the next big question in personal finance. And there really aren't so many, right? In the same way, there aren't so many in the world of parenting. It comes back to the you know same sort of general founding principles. And so it's pretty rare to come across a new one. But a handful of years ago, I started to hear from people in my sort of general age cohort who were starting to think about sending their first care to college or readers who had read what I had written about how to save for college and how to pay for college. And they had a different question for me. They said, we've read all this stuff, but we can't figure out what we're supposed to make of the fact that our flagship state university, let's say one in Champaign or Urbana, Illinois, for instance, uh, you know, has crossed the $100,000 mark for four years of undergraduate education, including room and board all in. All right. Now, what my kid really wants is to like head up to Northwestern University. Uh, but that one, the list price there is about $300,000 for four years. And then, you know, there are these smaller arts colleges up in Minnesota and over in Ohio, and they all seem to be doing this discounting that I've never heard of before, this thing called Merit Aid, right? So, you know, my kid could go to Lawrence or my kid go to St. Olaf or my kid could go to Ohio Wesleyan, and that would probably be $200,000, right? So where is the set of big data that can explain to me why Lawrence is $100,000 better than the University of Illinois, and why Northwestern is $100,000 better than Lawrence. And I thought, wow, you idiot. You have spent all of this time writing about how to pay for college and how to save for college, but you'd miss the most important question of all, which is the thing that people seem to be struggling with in those questions, which was what to pay for college. And as soon as I reframed it for myself, thanks to these readers around value, I realized that that was the new question that I'd been looking for. And there was not going to be any way to answer it without a book. Well, so this leads me right to my next question. So the book takes a deep dive into money and value. And now Tracy mentioned the prices at both private and public schools have risen steadily. And this is my husband and I ask, you know, how can these schools get away with it? And why do parents keep paying? And is there possibly a tuition bubble? Will it break? <laughs> so those are two pretty different questions, okay. right? Um, you know, the last one is sort of about the structure of the market, but it does relate to the psychological makeup, the psychological framework of the customers, right? So why do people keep paying this? How can colleges get away with it? Well, it's because of people's ability to pay, and it is because of people's willingness to pay, right? So ability to pay, you would think that that would be on the decline as the prices go ever higher, but because of inequality and because a lot of people are actually coming out of the pandemic in better shape, much better shape, by double digits if they stayed employed, right? Stock market was up 15 or 20% last year. People spent less because they weren't traveling, buying clothing, right? A lot of people are coming out ahead here. Um, so 
it is actually possible that there will be more people with the ability to pay, not fewer in the coming years um, because of all this. And then there's the willingness, right? And that is a different sort of consumer framework. But when you are dealing with your children and their future, that is the most likely arena in which um, you are going to be tempted to make decisions on the basis of emotion rather than reason and data, right? So that's kind of the how. So your what question was about, well, what's going to happen when this is all declared a bubble or, you know, the, 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 the laws of economics come into four and, you know, everything that goes up must fall down. And I'm just not so sure it happens that way. Colleges actually cost a lot of money to run, and they cost a lot of money to run because of the people who work there, right? It's not because of lazy rivers or amenities <laughs> or anything like that. It's because people are expensive. And now try to imagine the school that you would choose for your, you know, precious children that, that have stripped the people bare of the place, right? Everybody's all upset about learning in Zoom rooms right now. Well, guess what? If you wanted college to be half the price, there would be a heck of a lot of Zoom learning. There would be a lot of online technology. There would not be so much community. There wouldn't be any dorms. There would certainly be no food, right? And so is that really what people are clamoring for? And is that what the marketplace for 22-year-olds wants? Like a bunch of people who have not actually spent time with one another? Are those the people they want to hire or bring to grad school? I don't think so, right? So I don't see some enormous bubble, let alone a one that is about to pop in a way that would cause all of the prices to fall by 50%. So... In your book, and now I graduated college, University of Illinois in 1994. So I was a freshman and I graduated high school in 1990. There was a term that you used and you said it a few minutes ago that I had no idea what the hell you were talking about because I've heard of academic or athletic scholarships, but I had never heard of merit aid and I didn't know how pervasive it was in the college world now. Could you kind of in a cliff notes version, because you spent a great deal of time in the book talking about merit aid, how it's a, what it is, first of all, what the heck is merit aid and um, how it's applied to families for schools. I gleaned from it and tell me if I'm wrong. It, it feels like an individualized coupon. Like your, for your daughter to go here, we'll, we'll give you X discount to come if you choose to come to our school. Is that, is that a fair analogy or is that oversimplified? No, I don't think it's that far oversimplified. I actually think it's a better way to think about it because merit aid at the end of the day is marketing. But let's start at the beginning of the day. Let's take it back to the 90s. Let's keep it in the Midwest. Let's go to the great state of Ohio, right? Terrific flagship state university, whole bunch of private colleges, small ones that are all sort of you know, fighting against each other in the marketplace, but everybody's wearing elbow patches and smoking a pipe. So, you know, it's sort of genteel, right? And then Ohio Wesleyan gets it in their head that if they offer $5,000 to students who are really, really good, who might not otherwise come there, those students would come and it would improve their SAT scores for the incoming class and improve the GPA. And that would be super impressive to the people who make the U.S. news list. And then Ohio Wesleyan would rise in the rankings and then it wouldn't have to do this discounting anymore and all would be hunky-dory and its reputation would get better. But what they hadn't counted on was the fact that all the schools down the road were going to catch wind of this. And the next year, another one of them tried it, right? Right. 
And within a relatively small handful of years, all these schools in Ohio are slugging out. And so, you know, it goes farther and farther up the food chain where Ohio Wesleyan does it. And then Denison feels like it needs to do it too. And Denison does it and it steals kids from Kenyon. And so Kenyon sort of reluctantly backs into it and they're grabbing kids from Oberlin and Case Western. And pretty soon everybody is discounting in the state of Ohio. Uh, and then it sort of spills over to, you know, Minnesota or to Indiana or to Pennsylvania where there's a ton of discounting like this. And so originally Merit Aid really was a discount for the very best students in the class that uh, that a particular institution wanted to wanted to attract, right? But what it has become is something that nearly every school does, uh, and not just privates, most of the publics too now. And it's gotten so pervasive that like farther down the food chain, uh, they have to give quote unquote merit aid. To everybody, it's like, you know, community soccer or something where everybody gets a trophy because now you need to pat everybody on the head and the parents in particular to make the parents feel like they got a gold star for raising a meritorious child. So you see how it becomes marketing? Yes. So we talked about this on a previous podcast, but um, a couple years ago, there was an article in the Chicago Tribune. It was a headline story that I shared with all my friends. It was something about Alabama, University of Alabama uh, and um, the brain drain. So I went to University of Illinois mm-hmm. and U of I was losing all these people to Alabama. Was Alabama, that story, was that linked to merit aid? So Alabama was using merit aid to lure kids to come down there and leave, go out of state instead of staying in state? You bet it was. So here's what happened, right? It was the private colleges and universities that sort of perfected the merit aid game. But state universities, including big flagships like the one in Alabama, sort of looked at this and thought, well, wow, uh, you know, we could play this game too. And so the interesting thing about the University of Alabama is that everybody knows it for football, right? This is a, a school of national renown. But it had not attracted kind of more than its fair share of people from outside the state or certainly outside of the region, right? So the University of Alabama folks are sort of looking at this. And then the recession comes in 2008 and 2009, and the state legislature slashes its appropriations to ribbons. So now all of a sudden they have much less money to work with. So they got to jack up tuition for in-state students. And they think to themselves, well, maybe now is the time we go chasing after kids from the Northeast and kids from Texas and kids from Florida. They've all heard of us, right? This is a beautiful place. We've got good professors here. Why not? So they raise out-of-state tuition to the moon. And then they go out recruiting upper-middle-class families with the ability to pay full price. And they start throwing discounts and coupons at them. This merit aid. And all these people feel good about it, and they fly down, and they fall in love with the place. And pretty soon, the University of Alabama, within literally just a handful of years, has more students from out of state than it did from in-state. And it is spending way more money on merit aid for those kids than it is for need-based aid for low-income people from the state. And so many smart kids from Illinois were flipping the bird to Champaign-Urbana and getting on airplanes down to Alabama that when an enterprising Tribune reporter wrote about this, the legislature, which is not swimming in money right now there in the state of Illinois, was shamed 
schemed into coughing up like $25 million so that Illinois could have a merit aid program to keep these kids around. So you see how the dominoes fall? Yeah, keeping up with the Joneses, kind of. They realized they had to do it to compete in the marketplace. Exactly. So um, if you wanted to get more information about merit aid, about schools that you are interested in, where the heck would you find that data? You can't have it. (laughs) You can't have it. It's not for you. Don't ask. It's behind the curtain, like behind closed doors. I mean, give the folks at the University of Alabama some credit, uh, or, or maybe not, depending on how you look at it. At least they are transparent. Right. If you want the money from Alabama, you go to the web page and you find the grid where one access is GPA and the other one is test scores and you kind of figure out where you need to be to get the money you want. Now, that hasn't been so great for students in the past year who can't figure out where to go to even take a test because of the coronavirus. And Alabama has not really backed down in the way that other schools have uh, because they don't want to give up their grid and they don't want to give up the marketing scheme that's working for them. But at least they are transparent. Lake Forest College is transparent in this way. Wabash in Indiana is transparent in this way. But if you go looking at schools like McAllister in Minnesota or or Oberlin or, or Kenyon in Ohio, they're not giving up any secrets. Um, you can't really figure out on their admissions or financial aid website uh, who gets merit aid and who doesn't. And the only way to attempt to back into it is through something called the common data set, which most people never see and a lot of people don't know exists. You have to Google it because it's never linked from anywhere convenient. So you just Google common data set in the name of the school. And what you will find there is a list of like 500 data points that the school sends to all of the different college rankings organizations and magazines like US News. And you go to line H2A, I know it by heart, and that's where the financial aid stuff is, where they talk about, it's not called marriage but the way they sort of disguise it or use a euphemism, it is non-need-based aid, right? So remember when we went to college, basically the only kind of aid was, you know, based on your financial need. So that all still exists, but merit aid is a whole different category. And merit aid has nothing to do with financial need and everything to do with who you are and what you've done. So you look for that non-need-based aid and you can figure out what percentage of the class got it how much they got on average. And then in a different part of the common data set, you can figure out what sort of uh, GPA and test scores would you need as an applicant to be in the top 25% of the class. So if 25% of the class is getting merit aid, then you kind of know what marks you need to hit to be in contention. But schools do not make this easy, and it is not in their interest to make it easy. Right. That the college data set, I was Googling that the, over the weekend, a bunch of schools just to see, like, look at H2. I, I went right to those um, charts and graphs to, to see it. So mm-hmm. I, I didn't even know that existed. So I definitely suggest everyone go and start Googling a couple of schools that their kids are looking into. It's very interesting information. Ron, uh, this is a side note, but when I applied, I did either early action or early decision. I think it was early action um, to get in early because I wanted to go to Yale. If a kid chooses that and then there therefore is kind of a handshake commitment saying, if you let me in in December, you're my choice. Does merit aid get cut off? Like, could Yale say, well, you're committed, man. I'm not going to offer you anything. So, Yale and the 40 or 50 roughly most selective colleges and universities in the country uh, do not offer merit aid. Oh. 
Um, <laughs> of course not. Well, right again, like think about this, right? What we're talking about here is a disconnect between ability to pay and willingness to pay. And the people who get into Yale have the willingness to pay. Yale does not have a market problem. There are a number of people who get into Yale who have an ability problem, but because Yale is a really rich institution, the people who have ability problems get their full demonstrated financial need met by the school. So you've got to kind of go down the food chain of selectivity roughly to the spot where you hit Tulane, Northeastern, USC, McAllister, Oberlin, Occidental, schools like that. Really great schools, but not like tippy top of the heap. Those are the schools that feel like they need to buy students. And often they're buying students away from a place like Yale. This is a thing now where people get full rides at USC and full rides at Tulane, full merit aid rides, and they turn down the Ivy League because uh, the deal is just too good. But to get to the crux of your question, I mean, there are two ways to think about it, right? I guess it depends on how you're feeling financially, right? Because if if money is a factor, then you need to think about, well, am I at a school that offers merit aid? And if you're applying to a Yale, it doesn't, right? And if it guarantees to meet your full financial need, you can be reasonably confident that you're going to get a like B plus financial aid package. I did. But you won't, ha- but you won't have to, you know, you won't have anything to compare it to. If you, if you apply regular decision and you run the table, right? And you get into Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, then you can do a little maneuvering, try and get a little more money, right? Now, when it comes to merit aid and applying early through a binding process, that is a little more sketchy, right? Because put yourself in the position of the admissions officer. You're trying to nail down as much of your class as possible as early as possible so you have some certainty about the revenue and there are fewer people that you have to um, win over in the spring. And if you know that people have, in effect, raised their hand for a binding commitment, how generous are you really going to be with them, right? I mean, you sort of lost all leverage. Like, why would you use very much of your merit aid budget in December if you don't have to? Because the less you use, the more you have left over to throw at people in the spring. So I don't know that it's a great idea for people to apply early at a merit aid school if merit aid and money is important to you. So speaking of Yale, because uh, I feel like there's like a, what's the word I'm looking for? <laughs> I don't like, know. I think I'm going to be thrown under a bus right here. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I went to a public state school and went to Yale. Um, I feel like when, when parents are thinking about college, there's like a, a badge of honor or like a lot of emotion wrapped into like, it's a, a braggy thing to say sometimes where your kids are going off to school. And you spent some time in your book talking about some of the emotions that are involved with selecting schools for your kids, with your kids. And you talked about fear, guilt, and snobbery. Do you think that schools actually use that to their advantage? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, where do we even start, right? Fear. Fear that your kid will fall down the social class ladder if they don't go to the name brand institution that has the shiny new career center, right? I mean, think about how that could be used to manipulate you emotionally. Guilt. 
Guilt that you didn't save enough. Guilt that you didn't earn enough. Guilt that you're not doing what your parents did for you. Guilt that the system has changed entirely and you did not figure it out uh, in time or um, figure out how to beat the system. Guilt, 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 right? And then, then the quote-unquote award letter arrives from financial aid, and it's chock full with suggestions that you may interpret as orders, right, via the expected family contribution and the great expectations of our federal government through the financial aid forums that people would just do whatever they are told, what is expected of them to contribute to their family's education, right? Um, you get these award letters that tell you that you should be borrowing and not just the kid, but the parents should be borrowing. And like, that's how they, you know, meet your demonstrated need. And you will feel guilty uh, if you don't, if your kid wants to go to the more expensive place. Now, maybe you are made of extra strong stuff, but this is a pivotal moment. Your child will have strong feelings and it's hard to say no as a parent, particularly for this big, important thing, right? So guilt. And then snobbery and elitism, right? You know, I mean, just the, 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 the sweatshirt reveals and the bumper <laughs> stickers and the... The flags you know, on the front porch. Yeah, and the, um, right, yeah, the mascot showing up and the videos of the kids finding out at the laptops. I mean, I, I you know, I love that stuff and I'm happy for my friends and their kids. but. You know, you never see a school brag, a high school brag on its list of coming uh, college matriculations, right? When they send out lists every year of like where the seniors are going, there's never a category or an asterisk that says our high school seniors won $17 million in merit aid offers this year, right? There's no acknowledgement that somebody might have chosen a less selective school because money was not no object. So why don't we brag about that, right? Why don't we brag about that achievement? Why don't we acknowledge that maybe the reason Yale isn't on the list this year was that the three kids who got into Yale took merit packages at Oberlin, USC, and Tulane. Interesting. That's totally true. I wish. <laughs> One of the things that struck me um, was actually early in the book, Ron, you talked about the goals parents have for their teenagers, and you broke it down into three, the three big ones. When it comes to college, what do we want from college for our kids? We don't have the faintest idea what we want. <laughs> right? And that's the problem, right? Like, what is college? You know, I don't mean to like get all existential about it, right? But like when something is this expensive, right? It sort of pays literally to stop and ask yourself, wait, what is it that we are actually doing here, right? What is the point of the exercise? What is the definition of success here? How much is enough, right? So like define, define your terms here, right? So what is college? I kept asking this over and over and over again for years. Eventually, I realized that I was hearing some version of the same thing. Three same things. Number one, you go to college for the education. That may feel like a duh moment duh. there, right? Yeah. But it's not true for everybody, and I make no judgments about that. And in fact, uh, you would be shocked at the extent to which schools do not measure how much people are learning. And it turns out there was a whole a, a couple of uh, academic books on the topic that basically, you know, prove that a whole bunch of people are learning nothing at all. Um, and so, you know, we should ask about that, right? You go to college, number one, 
to have your mind grown and your mind blown, uh, to have the pieces of your brain taken out by an experienced instructor and reassembled into a greater version of the sum of its parts. So that's number one. Number two, you go to school for kinship. You go to school to find your people. Um, this is a somewhat more polite way of saying that you go to school to have a damn good time, right? And if that is the most important thing to you, and for some kids it is, right? Or if what you're really going to school for is to like find the people who will carry you through life, right? Your network, the people who will come to your wedding and carry your casket at your funeral and, you know, invest in your startup in between. Um, I, I have no beef with you, right? Just be honest about, you know, what the point of the exercise is. And if that's the point, you know, your, your, your flagship state university may be the very best way to do that because you can plug straight into a Greek system or all sorts of different clubs, um, you know, and it's the, and they're kind of niches of, of people all over the place. Good for you if that's all you want, but just be honest with yourself about it. And then number three, is people go to college for the credential. And maybe if you're from a working class or low-income background, maybe you're the first person in your family to go and you want to grasp hold of the middle class and, you know, hang on to that ladder, uh, that rung of the ladder for dear life, right? So you're trying to get the nursing degree or pass your CPA exam or become a teacher or something like that. And then other people go to get a gold-plated credential, right? So I don't know about you, Ms. Yaley here, right? <laughs> but, you know, I went to a pretty fancy undergraduate institution as well. And, you know, my parents had done okay for themselves, but our family fell on pretty hard times financially, relatively, like during middle school and high school. And I didn't really feel like I was part of the upper middle class at that point, let alone, you know, the upper class. But I reached for that credential and I got it and that credential opened doors to me to like the very highest you know tiers of, of journalism and it did so within basically like a handful of months not even years so sometimes that can be worth it so any of those three things right education kinship credentialism. Any of those three things are fine. And maybe you only want two of them or even one, but you have to be brutally honest with yourself about what it is that you think is important. Everybody in the family may not agree, right? Yeah. So you got to figure out how big those pieces are in your pie and then shop accordingly. So this leads to my next question, because in the book, you do talk about what is worth paying for. And you have a number of things, but let's start with classrooms, you know, mind blown, mind grown. Can you get direct professor instruction experiences at the big public universities, or do you have to go to one of these tiny colleges and, and have that access? Well, it can certainly happen. I mean, it's very much a department-by-department department thing at large flagship state universities and also um, large public universities. So, you know, the question you want to ask if this is important to you is try to figure out what percentage of time a student will be inside a classroom that has more than 100 people in it. So not the student-faculty ratio, because there are a whole bunch of faculty that never teach. Not the average class side, because that's misleading in its own way. You want to know what actual percentage of the time you'll be in a classroom that has a whole bunch of people in it. And you want to know by department if your child has a particular uh, academic interest. 
So why is this important, right? Why is faculty contact important? Well, I mean, in addition to the discussions, you know, being much better uh, and more interactive and in a, in a smaller class generally, the smaller the class, the greater the opportunity there will be to actually make contact with and get to know your teachers. You know, there continues to be very little good data out there about what makes for a satisfying and successful undergraduate experience. But one thing we do know from years of work that the Gallup organization has done is that finding a mentor is crucial. And you're most likely to find a mentor in a classroom. And if you want to find a mentor in a classroom, it should be a place where graduate students are not doing the teaching, where the class sizes are not enormous, and you will have the best opportunity to actually meet and get to know the people who are teaching you things. Building on that just a little bit uh, past the classroom, when you're trying to decide which schools to focus on for your kids and what's the best fit, everything's about the value and what what you're gonna what you think you're gonna get from picking this school over this. And I was thinking about something that's not really academic, but I feel like in the last years even maybe more important with the mental health crisis of kids that are not their first year in college that are experiencing like this is not the same as how it always used to be. How is there a way for people that are looking to go for schools for their kids to go to to figure out where they put their resources for mental health? Because it's something that you you can't touch or you can't pull the data down. Like where how would you find go about researching how they handle mental health resources and stuff on campuses of the schools you're looking for. Sure. So this is actually something you can do and there is data uh, around it and there are questions that you can ask. And, you know, I got radicalized around this issue by being blindsided by it. Thankfully, not personally. My, my girls are 15 and five and, and so we're not in the mix yet. But, you know, I work at the New York Times every so often, you know, they ask one of us to come entertain lunchtime visitors. I can't even remember why these folks were there, but it was a room of 20 or so college presidents, mostly, you know, smaller, uh, less selective schools. And, you know, when I'm addressing groups like that, one of the icebreakers I took out is I asked them, like, okay, well, you know, could you tell me about the thing about this job that you have that most surprised you? So I asked them that question, and one of them raises their hand and said, nobody told me that 15% of the kids were going to show up here with prescriptions for psych meds. Wow. And all of a sudden, there was this like murmuring in the room, and we were headed off down a conversational pathway that I had not expected to be on. Years later, the Wall Street Journal rounded up a whole bunch of data and discovered that you know, at many schools, 25% of the undergraduates are technically disabled because of their mental health diagnoses. So it is a lot of people. And these presidents did not understand that they were going to be running mental health healthcare organizations, accounting for and paying for and administering mental health benefits out in the for-profit world is a tricky task even for the most experienced administrators and these college presidents were not actually prepared for it. So what they have found recently is there is just a shortage. There's a shortage of resources on these campuses, right? So what do you need to know as a parent? Well, you want to know what is the average wait time for an appointment? In other words, if I'm feeling the need, how many business days, because these counselors keep bankers hours for the most part, how many business days am I going to need to wait just to have an initial intake appointment? And am I going to be limited 
to a certain number of sessions per semester or per year. When they think that nobody is looking, these mental health practitioners, who I know you know, do very good work, they talk about the practice of shedding, S-H-E-D, shedding children, right? Shedding clients. You've got to shed clients so that you can bring in more clients because the demand is so high that you, know, you can't keep people around for that long. These are institutions, these, these, these counseling centers are not programs uh, or departments that are made for doing weekly one-on-one therapy for the entire year for large number of students. And if we wanted them to be, we would have to pay for it. So where are we finding that? Is that part of the college data set? information? It is not not part of the common data set. I wish it was. Uh, I wish U.S. News and others would start asking those questions. But each school reports into at least one and possibly two national organizations that put out reports on this stuff. And the reports, you know, exist in the wild. You can sort of Google them and, and get the national reports. Now, you won't get school by school data there, but you'll have a sense of what the school is tracking. And you should go in and ask for this stuff. Right. Part of what I'm trying to do here is create, um, a, you know, a small army of more entitled consumers. Right. Not because I want to be oppositional or like warmongering around this, but we deserve way more than we get in terms of, you know, information and predictability across the board. And until more of us start asking literally, you know, at the group information sessions, what is the average weight for an appointment at the mental health counseling center? Now, why do people not ask that? Because their kids would freaking kill them. Right? Um, some schools have started to separate on the tours, the kids from the parents, the parents can ask these kinds of questions, but you know, if, if, if yours is a mixed crowd, that's fine. You know, go up to the person afterwards, let your kid walk out. So, you know, your kid can't be associated with you by sight. Right. And, you know, go up to the, the admissions rep and say, I have a couple questions for you about how mental health care works. And, you know, if, a thousand readers of the price you pay for college do this in the next 12 months, 27 schools will start producing that data and having it at the ready. And then once people see it, they will be, other people see it, they'll be primed to ask for it too. And we will all have accomplished something very important together. Awesome. You don't know what you don't know. So until reading this, I didn't, I didn't even think or wrap my head around that and how that would be an important thing. I have friends whose kids have dropped out of school. Like not sometimes it's overwhelming. It's the first time the kid's gone away or whatever. And for whatever reason, they've dropped out. Those are things that I personally know people that have, that has happened to. So that's what, that was why that mental health chapter I thought was really impactful. Yeah. I didn't know what I didn't know either. I just had the strong sense um, that we as a body of parents were failing to ask better questions. And if nothing else, I am a professional asker of inconvenient <laughs> questions. That's what I do at the New York Times all day is just, you know, kind of get in the faces, particularly of for-profit entities, um, but also just like random readers and, you know, real people and just say, look, you know, I, I'm, I'm here to ask you about the hard stuff, right? Money equals feelings, right? So we're not just going to talk about money. We're going to talk about feelings. <laughs> and once we get at least a little bit more comfortable with doing that, then like maybe we can make some progress on asking better questions. So you also mentioned the career counseling centers, and, and you mentioned this at the top of the podcast. How can we evaluate the level of support 
for career counseling at each school? It's hard. I, I think there is a generalized um, understanding at all of these schools that the career counseling you know, on average, the undergraduate career counseling was like something close to abysmal a couple of decades ago. And, you know, they were essentially order takers for whatever large employer, you know, wanted to show up on campus and do interviews. They were sort of event planners for them. And there might be one or two people around who kind of administered you know, Myers-Briggs personality tests and then would suggest that you should be, a, you know, a librarian or a computer programmer. And that was it. And they maintained some paper books that you could page through. Now they're doing all sorts of stuff, right? So here are some things that you might want to look for. Does the school guarantee that you will get an internship? I mean, that's like a bold statement, but if a school can do that, it means that they have tentacles plugged way deep into the alumni community and way deep into the local geography, and they are hustling. Um, some schools assign you a mentor now. They guarantee that you will have one. They go out into the open market in Indianapolis, Indiana. This is what Butler University does. And they go out and they buy mentors, you know, a bunch of retired executives and, and some current executives from around town who mostly just give the money back just because they love doing it so, so much. And, you know, you have to meet with your mentor twice a semester and, you know, all of that stuff, right? Um, you know, ask some Ask some inconvenient questions if you're thinking about going to schools like Grinnell College in Grinnell, Iowa, or Lawrence University up in Wisconsin. Because if you want to do internships during the school year, or you're hoping that interesting people will come and talk about their interesting jobs, they're much more likely to do it if your school is like close to an airport or close to a city, right? And so if the credential is important to you and what the credential will mean in the marketplace, you have to think like, all right, am I really going to pay $75,000 a year to go to school in a place where not a lot of interesting people come to visit or where it's hard to have an internship? So these are some of the things that you can ask. I wanted to touch a little bit on something that you bring up in the price you pay for college, which is gap years. I think with the last year unfolding, some families have given some very serious thought to gap years because it wasn't school wasn't going to look like they remembered it or expected it from when they were at school. Can you flesh out your research on gap years? I can. The research only goes back 35 years or something like that, you know, to uh, when I was growing up in Chicago. And my best friend, Colin, and I both applied to college early decision at the same time. We both got in at the same day, and he decided he wasn't going to go. And I'm like, what are you talking about? How come you didn't tell me this, right? And he had gotten wind of the idea that there were, you know, a handful of renegade teenagers out there who decided to do what, in fact, goes on and is regularized in many other you know, richer countries around um, the world, which is that somebody goes and does something else for a year or two before they go to university, you know, and, and maybe it's national service, maybe it's doing time in the military, or maybe it's just working for a while and saving some money and doing a little traveling. And so he took two years off before he joined me at college and he shot the lights out as a 20 year old first year in a way that I could not have imagined doing at age 18. And so we wrote a book about it called Taking Time Off. And our hunch back then was that 
people who take time off get better grades and better jobs afterwards than people who don't. It just made intuitive sense. And it was true from, you know, the anecdotes that we had collected. Thankfully, real live academics with PhDs that I don't have have actually done the homework in the decades since. And they've totally proved the point about um, better grades. And, you know, it only makes sense, right, with a year or two of maturity that you would do better and have your head screwed on straighter in the classroom. And the better job stuff, you know, continues to be uh, anecdotal, but also common sense, right? Because if you think about who would you hire if you've got like a stack of 22-year-olds on one side and then the 23-year-old over here who was, you know, a postal carrier on the southwest side of Chicago in a temp job for nine months and learned all about his or her neighbors, you know, wandering around uh, the south side and then took half the earnings and you know, spent it to go learn Swahili in Africa and then came back, you know, and went to Illinois State, right? Um, I mean, just think how how much more successful and interesting, you know, that student is going to be. So, yes, gap years. And obviously, you know, given what's gone on in the last year and with more people now being forced to ask questions about value, right? You know, the three things we talked about before, right? Um, Education, kinship, credential. Two of those things have been stripped bare from the experience because the education isn't as good in a bunch of Zoom rooms and the kinship is gone if you're not on campus or, you know, if you can't drink and hook up anymore, right? <laughs> you know, or go out for coffee after class or go to go to group meetings. Um, so the only thing that's left is the credential, right? So you're really going to pay $75,000 for that? It seems kind of insane. It seems insane to pay twenty dollars or $25,000 for it, uh, you know, at Wisconsin Whitewater or Purdue or Iowa state. It seems bonkers, frankly. Like, go do something else. All right. So one other thing you brought up in the book, you sort of called them money-saving hacks, but you also debunked them. Community college. Doing a couple years at community college, you cited a research study in 2016 of more than 700,000 students who started community college in in 2007 and found that just 14% of them transferred to a four-year school and graduated within six years. You suggest talking to your community college Tracy and I have talked about this, like, you know, get my your, husband says it. Yeah, get your prereqs yes. out of the way and then and then finish off somewhere fancy. But that's not necessarily the case. Well, all my readers are above average. Uh, my readers of the New York Times are above average and my readers of the price you pay for college are going to be above average by the time I'm done with them. Um, <laughs> so but part of what I'm trying to do in citing that research is not so much like debunk the idea that community college is great because it is great for lots of people. I want to debunk the notion that it's an easy hack because it is not an easy hack. And most hacks, in fact, are not easy. You know, you have to be sort of rangy and wise and you know, sort of maneuver, right? And there is a lot of maneuvering that is involved with community college. In order to be sure, you will get in there and get out of there in two years and get to your intended destination. You need to start with the intended destination in mind, and you need to have two grown-ups by your side. Like, preferably, you're sleeping at the foot of their beds, frankly, right? (laughs) You need an admissions counselor at your intended destination who will literally push the requirements into your brain every six weeks to remind you of what you need to do to end up at that place, both in terms of the grades and the prerequisites, so that when you get to that place, you can get out of that place in two years, right? Because if it takes five years or seven, then you're not saving any money. At the community college, 
Same thing, except in reverse. You want a counselor who's going to make sure that you get into the classes that you need, preferably with the instructors who are best, to get you both smart enough and have the right things on your transcript so you can, in fact, get out of there in two years and get to your intended destination. And that's hard. It's not easy. And if you go in there like without a head of steam or a plan, it'll take three and a half years to like get the prerequisites and then maybe some of them will be wrong. And then it'll take three more years at the state university. And then you won't have really saved any money and you'll have lost a bunch of time in the workplace. That was something that you, um, one example you gave was about like the 12 to 16 classes that students need to take to finish at the community college and how if everyone's doing that, they fill up really quick. And I was like, oh my gosh, that totally makes sense. And you just don't, you're like, oh yeah, I'm going to go over to COD and I'm going to just take these classes and it's going to be fine. And then I'm going to go off to U of I or whatever. And, and that it's it's not quite that simple. And so uh, reading that, I was like, okay. So I, I actually, I had my husband read that part because he's the one that was saying, maybe the kids should just go off to the community college for a little bit and get it all done. We'll save money. And so that whole chapter was very, very um, educational. Yeah, I mean, remember, they'll be living at home, too, presumably, right? So you'll still be paying for their room and board, their board for sure. And, you know, I guess the way I want people to think about it is, you know, it's not like just waltzing your way into, you know, an easy, cheaper option. It's more like trying to get Beyonce tickets at at Ticketmaster at 10 in the morning on the appointed (laughs) drop day. It's like trying to get a vaccine slot for the coronavirus, right? You know, you need to be wily and smart and prepared and like watching everything. And you need to be like brutally determined to make it work. You want to be in the 14%. And I want all my readers to be in the 14%. I used to stand in line at the Dominex for the Ticketmaster for Dave Matthews tickets. <laughs> like you had to go really early and get you had to be prepared and have a plan. So I, I'm old I, enough. I'm old enough to have done it at Rose Records for Journey. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> uh, so Ron, another thing you talked about was like the notion of skipping college altogether, and you cited a study in 2019: average college graduates with no graduate degree earned seventy-eight thousand dollars per year, thirty-three thousand more than someone with just a high school diploma. Over the years, does that add up and make sense? It does add up. I mean, here's what's happening now is that the people without college degrees are actually falling farther behind. As more and more people earn college degrees, it's not that the um, what the so-called wage premium is increasing because of movement at the top end. It's because the people at the bottom end are struggling, and they've definitely struggled even more in the past year on average. If you have a college degree, you were, you were more likely to retain your job in this particular economic hurricane. So, you know, it does add up to, you know, a seven-figure amount over time. And I think that's important, right? We all want to earn enough money to make a living. And many, if not most, parents want their kids to do at least as well or, you know, preferably surpass them economically. But that's not everybody's vibe, right? And maybe you are a pretty affluent family and what your kid wants more than anything else is to, you know, enter a field, uh, you know, maybe it's social work or maybe it's the arts or, you know, could be anything, right? But but a field that you can be reasonably sure will be less lucrative than yours over the long haul. And so that's not many parents' idea of the American dream. But for many teenagers and many adults, doing as well as their parents did is not the definition of success. And the way they answer the question of how much is enough 
you know, they may look at you at the, at the age of 18 and say, you know, what's enough for me? Probably about like two thirds of all of the stuff and the space that we have here in our family. Right. So that might feel insulting, right? It's like, oh, you're saying that I spoiled you, right? You don't appreciate all of these nice things that we have or we did, but you know, not a very kid is like their parents and, and that's okay. And if they're um, sure that they're going to be happy chasing something that seems certain to be less lucrative, then I sort of think we need to give them that shot. Now, we don't want them to borrow $35,000 to do it, right? Um, it may necessitate a different choice of schools, but we should at least take them seriously when they say so. So, Ron, I, I know we're running out of time here. So, um, with the recent political discussions about canceling student debt, I wonder, A, is that a possibility? And I also wonder, will America ever have free college? I mean, we don't want to make your book irrelevant, <laughs> but other countries do it. So, let's start with the cancellation of some student loan debt, since that's a more likely possibility, and there have been conversations about it potentially happening imminently, right? So there's two ways that a Biden administration could potentially try to do it. They could try to do it through an executive order, you know, the sweep and signing of a pen, or they could try and do it through Congress. By all indications, they are not going to do it by an executive order because they don't want to be sued. And there's some legal question as to whether you can actually do that. So what's going to happen is that they're going to try and come up with some legislation that will cancel student loan debt and maybe make some other changes in the student loan program. Now, it's pretty interesting to note what they have not done vis-a-vis -vis their prioritization schemes, right? They did not put student loan cancellation into the $1.9 trillion bill that they laid out in January laying out many of their policy relief goals. So this is not a huge priority. They're not going to do it with the wave of a pen. It's possible that legislation could succeed, but my guess is that it's even if it does, it's not going to be more than $10,000 per student. So, you know, the average student graduates with something like, let's call $30,000 in student loan debt. $10,000 will make a significant difference. I don't know if it'll have like a stimulating the economy difference. It turns out that a lot of the big problems with student debt are not the sky-high student debt stories. It's the people who did not finish college but still had debt. So it's like the worst of both worlds. And they kind of fall out of the system. They go into default. And if they're $6,000 in debt that they haven't made a payment on because they just don't know to or have put their head in the sand, if that's wiped away in one fell swoop, that's really good for them and their credit and kind of getting themselves back into good shape. So then you ask about free college. And what are we talking about when we talk about free college? Usually what we're talking about is tuition, not room and board, you know, which is five figures a year, only for state schools and only if you make under a certain amount of money. So everybody's still going to be paying something if that ever happens someday. And more affluent families and those who attend, you know, private colleges and universities are still going to be paying what they paid before. The politics behind more free stuff for educated people are toxic. Now that doesn't mean we shouldn't try it, but it's toxic. So, yes, toxic, and, and we get that. But ultimately, in your book, Ron, you came away with optimism. And I thought that was funny because there's, a, there's, so much, there's so much to worry about and so much to think about. And you said your research, though, gave you hope. How, how is that? 
Because I feel like the people who start early, who learn how the system works, who put a little bit away at, at a time and come into it with an open mind about all of the possible destinations that exist in the country. I mean, say what you will about our crazy system. There are lots and lots and lots of choices. And, you know, by the end of my reporting for the book, I knew good and well that there were 50, 75, 100 schools out there where my daughter, my older daughter could go and find her place. And all sorts of them cost nothing close to $300,000 for the four years. That's what gave me hope. Ron, we could talk to you for hours. Our Allowance uh, podcast was one of the biggest downloaded, listened to podcasts that we have. So obviously when you're talking about money and value in our kids, this is something top of mind in everyone's household. So I think one of the things that you said in the book that really was like a gut punch was that while it's not only just the biggest financial decision that most families ever make, it may also be, and then I've got like a lump in my throat. It may also be the final big one you make together as a family. <laughs> and I'm a sentimental, I'm, I'm just that kind of person. And I yeah. was like, Oh, my, our daughters, both Ann and I both have freshmen mm-hmm. and. I just keep looking at her and I, especially over the last year, like hugging her and like trying to check in on her and everything. And I'm just realizing that it's fleeting, that pretty soon she's going to be gone. And so when that, I was reading that this weekend, I was like, oh, (laughs) it was, it was a bit much. You got me. The days are long, but the years are short, as my friend Gretchen Rubin says. Yes. The yes. days are long, but the years are short. And yes, I only cried four times. I only broke down in tears and had to stop four times reading the acknowledgement section this time when I was recording the audiobook. Only four. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're, you're in good company, Ron. <laughs> um, and we should say, too, that this is helpful for people who have kids who are freshmen, but it's also helpful for people who have young kids. You mentioned that it's good for grandparents who want to contribute. How can they help? It's good for teenagers navigating this themselves. So thank you so much, Ron Lieber, author of The Price You Pay for College, available right now in bookstores everywhere. Thank you, Ron. Yay. Thank you, guys. That was great. So apparently, Anne, you and I and all of our listeners have some homework to do. And we have a lot of reading, and there's still time, our freshmen. We have time to learn about the common data set and merit aid, and we'll be armed with a lot of information. What You always make fun of me when I say, knowledge is power. <laughs> but <laughs> but you, couldn't, you couldn't be more correct. And um, this should be fun. And the hope that he offers, the fact that, you know, there aren't three places that they can go. There are hundreds of places they can go and have the mind mind blown, mind blown, mind grown and and meet their people and get the degree. So, um, you know, another way we could have our mind blown is if everyone would go on iTunes and rate our podcast or like us on Facebook. I forgot how you do this. (laughs) Go, go on our Facebook page at uh, apparently share our podcast with your friends and like us on Facebook, follow us there. We try to stay, um, we try to update the Facebook page as much as possible. And we'd love to hear from you either from the Facebook page or from apparently podcast at gmail.com. Yes. So do let us know what you want to hear because we are back. 
back in business. So happy new year, everyone. This is a WGN Plus podcast. I'm Ann Johnsos. And I'm Tracy Weiner. Thanks for listening to Apparently.